Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Earlier this year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change identified carbon dioxide removal as an essential tool in the global effort to achieve net zero carbon emissions. One type of carbon dioxide removal, known as direct air capture, relies on machines to literally suck carbon dioxide from the air. The technology has so far struggled to gain a foothold due to its high cost, and doubts exist over if and when it might reach the scale needed to meaningfully address the climate threat. Yet a wave of recent investment commitments have generated hope that commercialization of direct air capture will accelerate. The commitments include $3.5 billion in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. In addition, the fossil fuel industry has committed over $1 billion to support direct air capture projects that will use captured carbon dioxide to increase production from oil wells through a process known as enhanced oil recovery. On today's podcast, we're going to dive into the controversy over the use of captured CO2 as a tool for oil production, and we'll look at whether the process might lead to net climate benefits or damages? The answer to this question, as we'll discuss today, may lie in how the process is ultimately regulated and governed. My guest is a researcher whose recent work has sought to quantify the climate impact of direct air capture paired with enhanced oil recovery. Pete Saris is a research assistant professor of chemical engineering here at the University of Pennsylvania. His work focuses on carbon dioxide removal and carbon capture. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Good to be here. To get us started, I wonder if you could, for those who may not be familiar, tell us what are direct air capture and enhanced oil recovery? Yeah, sure thing. Direct air capture is an engineered carbon dioxide removal solution. So carbon dioxide removal, we call CDR. This is this is a solution that can bring CO2 and capture it directly out of the atmosphere, right? This is not what you've heard of probably in the last decade, which is known as CCS, carbon capture and storage, right? And there's a really kind of key difference there. CCS is aimed at point sources like power facilities and, and ind industry like steel and cement, right? That are, are, are uh, notoriously carbon intensive that would emit that CO2 out of a stack per se, right? And you would put a, a scrubber or an amine solution there to, to capture that CO2 before it ever hits the atmosphere, right? And we need to do lots of that. Let's get that out of the way. And before that, we need to reduce, right? So kind of order of operations here. CDR kind of is sort of your cleanup, your in case of emergency, right? Once you've released all that CO2 to the atmosphere, either because you've done nothing or you've done not enough of the, the former, right? Reducing and, and capturing, right? It's a way to, to save us, right? Almost like a time machine, take that CO2 back out. So we do this with these large engineered machines, chemicals, you know, bind the CO2 and then, you know, release it in a controlled way so that it doesn't kind of remit to the atmosphere. So that's direct air capture. You'll be hearing about it a lot over the next decade. But we need something to do with that CO2. And so storage underground is an option. 
EOR, enhanced oil recovery, or or CO2 EOR. And and when I when I talk about EOR today, I'm going to talk about CO2 EOR, though there are many different forms of enhanced oil recovery. CO2 EOR uses carbon dioxide to extract the remaining oil in in a in a field that has gone through kind of conventional recovery. And so if you're squeezing the last bits of oil out of that field that could not be recovered under kind of conventional means, kind of water injection, et cetera. CO2 as a working fluid is injected, kind of makes that oil a little bit more miscible. And so it's a, an economic opportunity for the oil and gas industry, right, to, to extract more oil without having to move their operations uh, to, to, to a, kind of a, a new field, a new endeavor. And it's, it's really the largest use of or user of carbon dioxide, at least in this country, right? By 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 leaps and bounds, about you know between sixty and seventy million tons of carbon dioxide per year in the U.S. are used for this purpose. It's the second largest user of carbon dioxide globally, outside of fertilizer and urea production. So a lot of that carbon dioxide that you're talking about that's used in enhanced oil recovery is what's called natural carbon dioxide. That's brought up from underground and then it's it's reinjected. But we're talking here today about combining direct air capture and enhanced oil recovery. And this is this is, you know, there's been a lot of announcements in this. One of the most notable is one from earlier this year where Occidental Petroleum, a major oil producer in the Permian Basin, is investing up to a billion dollars in a project using technology licensed from a Canadian company called Carbon Engineering to create the largest direct air capture plus enhanced oil recovery project to date. But, But again, so why specifically use the carbon dioxide from direct air capture for this process? What are the the goals of that? Well, the the reason you would want to kind of pair these is it's really again an an economic driver uh, for the viability of of really direct air capture or even historically carbon capture and storage. We've seen a lot of projects tied to EOR uh, because you have a stable source of revenue, right? Um, and that is been shown through analysis to be one of the predictors of success in these projects. And I don't think it's no secret then that when you look at sort of the the the, the players in, in, in CCS globally, you know, 22 of 27 projects right now are tied to enhanced oil recovery. So it's a, it's an indicator of, of where that where that success lies. Um, um, and it's an indicator of the, of the economics, right? CCS is is an expensive endeavor direct air capture since you're targeting dilute right co2 in the atmosphere is even more expensive and so get, getting that you know stable source of revenue uh to kind of underwrite the project for from a viability standpoint makes the makes the pairing make sense uh, uh from 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 that perspective right but you did mention natural co2 so the way it's done today largely is mining CO2 from underground uh, and then using that as an injected fluid uh, for for CO2 ER. That's unfortunate. It's, it's obviously economic because it's very cheap to do that, right? You're talking about, you know, dollars on the ton compared to hundreds of dollars on the ton for what you would have from an industrial or, or direct air capture source. So you can certainly see the economics work, work there. 
but you really have absolutely no climate benefit here because that CO2 is going to end up hitting the atmosphere through the combustion of the oil. And it's all new to the atmosphere. So we're looking at direct air capture to make that more cyclic or, or industrial CO2 for the same reason. Now, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has really pointed out that direct air capture is going to be essential to uh, achieving net zero carbon uh, and addressing the climate threat. How much direct air capture will we need and by when? And to put that into context, how much do we actually have today? The amount of direct air capture we need is, is, is certainly contested. There are some people who, who will say we need none. We need, uh, we need carbon dioxide removal is what we need. And we're going to do that through nature-based solutions, afforestation, reforestation, improved forest management, perhaps soil sequestration, regenerative agriculture, et cetera. Um, there is a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of benefits as well to these 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 types of solutions, uh, particularly ecosystem uh, uh, biodiversity. Uh, but in terms of permanence and durability of that stored CO2, right? And you have to kind of keep your eye on the prize here. We are trying to lower and limit atmospheric CO2 accumulation and concentration. Right? These engineered solutions really offer, I think, that. The security of long-term storage that is is much more challenging to achieve in the nature-based alternatives. So I say that direct air capture needs to take on some portion of that, you know, maybe 10 gigaton total, let's say just perhaps 10% of that, that would still place us at the billion ton mark. So let's say a gigaton of CO2 is needed. Where are we at today? The largest plant is 4,000 tons. Right, so we're looking at a, an enormous uh, a growth, uh, decade on decade, to reach that gigaton level uh, in in you know a matter of the next couple decades. So we're looking at that gigaton uh, target by say twenty fifty or so. Right, yeah, by mid century. So there's been a lot of controversy about the combination of direct air capture and enhanced oil recovery. Can you introduce us to some of those controversies? Well, first of all, let me step back and say that direct air capture in and of itself is controversial. Why is that? Well, see, because it's, it's part of the carbon dioxide removal and carbon dioxide removal is controversial in and of itself, specifically because, and here's the argument that, that it is it is sort of a safety net um, that could limit action today. I talked about the order of operations. You need we need to re be reducing our emissions, right? And I should state that clearly. We need to be reducing emissions as aggressively as possible. What you can't reduce, we should perhaps capture, right? From hard to abate industries, perhaps you know things like transportation sector, aviation. Some of those things are a little bit more challenging, right? as those technologies develop, right? And then once that is all said and done, once that is all said and done, you've gone through that diligence, we reserve carbon dioxide removal, which is can be an expensive and resource intensive option to clean up the absolute rest, okay? Um, people who look at this understand that that is how we should proceed. The, the, the problem is, is that because we need so much CDR, we just talked about you know that gigaton level. 
by mid-century. We have to talk about carbon dioxide removal today. We need to talk about director air capture today. And because it has almost become sort of the, the, the technology or the flavor of the day, right? People are worried that it, it, we're putting, you know, political capital and other resources into direct air capture when we ought to be, you know, devoting it to those other mechanisms, those reduction mechanisms. So fuel switching, renewable energy build out, right? And so do we have our priorities straight? So we need to figure out how to have that discussion simultaneously. So that's where the, the attack on direct air capture occurs, right? That it gets our priorities out of line. Um, now, CO2 EOR, well, I don't have to say fossil for you to know where the, the controversy lies, right? It is a mechanism to produce more fossil. Aren't we as a society sprinting in the absolute opposite direction? And I would say yes, right? Same idea. We do need to reduce fossil as fast as absolutely necessary to meet our climate goals, right? So how does CO2 EOR fit into that? Um, how does DAC CO2 EOR fit into that? And I think, you know, there's really two camps to that. There's the people who feel like the answer, those answers are cut and dry, you know, don't do carbon dioxide removal and absolute under no circumstance should we be producing any more fossil or being engaging in activities that would lead to fossil production. And then there's a camp that recognizes that there is a little bit of nuance there. There's a little bit of nuance in that discussion. Uh, and, and, and I, I like to step into that nuance a little bit, that those answers aren't quite as, as, as cut and dry or black and white. And if I just give you a quick example, right? I think one of the criticisms against CO2 EOR paired with DAC is this storage versus use argument. This is, this is an old argument in that it has persisted for the last at least decade that says, why would you ever use carbon dioxide for a purpose when it the best thing for climate is to put it underground and store it securely so it never hits the atmosphere again? And I totally get that argument. And, and I think the listeners can understand that that is the ultimate goal. I believe that's the ultimate goal, right? But it, it, it sort of places a, a, a false decision, right? And a false picture that you've captured that carbon dioxide. And all we have to do now is decide door A or door B. Door A is storage. Door B is use and produce fossil. Well, if you present that, then of course door A is, is, is the door of choice, right? But we recognize that in reality, use like CO2AR plays heavily into the viability of the project in the first place. So you can't assume that if you were going storage, that that project would have ever occurred. And that's what we see. And that's where the nuance lies. Well, then you have to step back and ask, well, well what, what, really, what really are our goals? Can we wait right, uh, for storage? And that's, again, what we're looking at. Uh, there's, there's, there is a little bit of a delay there, and I can talk about a little bit of why that is. Or do we go right now and we use CO2ER as a mechanism like it has in the past to, to enable the stand up of these technologies, the deployment and get them down the learning curves. And so it's a very near term goal to push these things, you know, down those learning curves, get those cost reductions, get that build out and that scale up that we desperately need that will save us in the future. 
the point here, just to sum up, is that the combination of direct air capture plus EOR, it improves the economics of direct air capture, right? It creates a revenue stream around the captured carbon dioxide. Uh, it's a product rather than something that's just going to be buried and that's the end of the story. And the idea there is by improving the economics, you can accelerate adoption, get us sooner or closer to the day when this stuff will all be scaled and, and really useful to address climate change. So one of the things that you have been researching for quite a long time now, and you've got some interesting findings around, I think this is a, a key near-term question, is what is the actual climate impact when you combine these two technologies together? Okay. Tell us about that research that you've done and what have you found what is the net climate impact of dac plus eor well it's it's a loaded question and i'm happy to take it on and it's why i i jumped into this research question it, it really asks that question if you were to use co2 eor in the near term to enable specifically direct air capture capacity build out over say the next decade would you be in a better place uh, at that mid-century mark or worse? Right? And, and there, there, there are a number of metrics that you could use there. You could look at how much, how much additional oil have we produced. You could look at, step back and say, what really what the, what the atmosphere cares about, at least from a, a carbon perspective, is what are the additional emissions in uh, you know, pursuing CO2 EOR, at least in the near term, versus not doing so. And then you could look at what is the actual DAC capacity, right? If you, if you were to use CO2 EOR to get that growth curve kind of jump started, right? Would that lead, where would that place you versus a counterfactual if not taking that pathway? Right? And, and I'll just say that there's, it, it's CO2 EOR with DAC, but more specifically just the, the, the parameter space around CO2 EOR can be very complicated. Um, so we, or at least I, I consider a number of variables. You consider use rate and, and or utilization rate. That's a function of how much CO two you're using to produce a barrel of oil. And obviously, you want to maximize that, right? Oil and gas companies have wanted to minimize that. Economically, it makes sense from a climate's perspective. We want to maximize that. The more CO two you put underground to lift that oil out, the more storage you have, right? And that's important from a use perspective, but it's also important from carbon intensity of the produced oil, right? Because I, I am a life cycle analysis practitioner, right? So one of the most, my, my curiosity really is, is tied to the, the, the carbon balance of this whole thing, right? You've got carbon coming in, but you're producing fossil, which is carbon going out. Where does that balance lie, right? And so in short, the, the, the more CO2 you put in, like the lower the carbon uh, of, of the produced oil, right? Then you have things like displacement rate. These are sort of economic arguments and, and how the markets work, right? That the idea that when we hear, you know, and the opponents to uh, at least CO2 EOR say no more additional oil, right? Well, there, there's really two things that would, would, that would make that oil additional. One is uh, that looking at the displacement rate. Displacement rate says, you know, how much, if you're producing a CO2 EOR barrel, how much would that actually displace on the open market, right? If, you're, if you displace none, you get a displacement rate of zero, then 
you know, one barrel of CO2 EOR crude is an initial barrel of oil. If you have a displacement rate of 100%, though, then you actually don't produce any additional oil. You just replace a barrel on the market with a much lower carbon intensity barrel, right? And what we find is that that displacement rate can be manipulated basically how you want to, right? Uh, based on how you how you observe the arguments that we see a lot of opponents kind of own a much lower replacement or displacement rate. We think it lies closer to around 80%. So we look at kind of that 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 space. But it's important to run a number of scenarios there because again, we don't know when there actually isn't a large body of research on 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 that. All right. But if if you step back and take a look at all of those kind of it's that scenario space, right? What I found is is that using CO2 EOR for DAC in a limited capacity, and when I say limited capacity, I'm not talking about for decades and decades. I'm talking about for a, a strict period of time. So over the next decade, for a strict number of facilities, say two to five very large direct air capture plants. So you know you're talking about two to five million tons of CO2 DAC capacity, uh, additional build out, we have lower carbon futures in 2050 and uh, versus not doing that, right? So versus not taking a CO2 UR pathway. Is that because of the acceleration of the technology? It's really tied strongly to two things. One is you are jump starting the growth, right? And, and People who want to play a little bit loose with that growth, you have to understand we are already on the clock and the growth demand, that 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 rate that we're looking at is very aggressive. We're talking about 25%, you know, decade on decade. That's that's a, a extremely aggressive growth rate. So the, the, that's for the DAC itself, right? That's the, for direct air capture. Again, to hit that gigaton mark at mid-century. And so if you start now and you get that jump started today, then we do have more DAC capacity in 2050 because of that jump start. Uh, and because you were producing lower carbon fossil, right? So lower carbon transportation fuels, you also get kind of emission reductions versus kind of a business as, as usual oil production, right? And I think that's one of the missing arguments in CO2 EOR. People just don't want to do it. But you have to recognize that if you that if you don't do that, that fossil is going to get produced by far more carbon intensive mechanisms, right? And so when you take that all into account, it is a lower carbon pathway to use CO2 EOR in the near term to boost that capacity. But there are very strict assumptions uh, and, and, and guidance that we need to make sure that that result holds. So it sounds like at the core, this oil that's produced through the injection of carbon dioxide from direct air capture, that oil needs to displace oil we might otherwise get from under the ground. It should not be additional barrels of oil that are produced, right? And as you said, we want to use as much CO2 as possible to produce each of those barrels of oil. And my understanding is that this is already going to be used to produce some of the hardest to get at barrels of oil anyways, right? So I think that implies that there's going to be a maximal use of CO2. Is that right? Well, we, we certainly want to replace natural CO2, right? And, and if you can do that with, with direct air capture source CO2, 
you're not actually increasing the amount of oil you're producing. You're, you're changing the carbon intensity of the oil that was being produced, right? So it, it, there's nothing currently that says that an oil and gas operation has to replace or has to have a certain profile of the amount of natural CO2 that they mine from the ground versus the amount of CO2 they take from an industrial capture partner or from a direct air capture partner. But the more of that that you can use, more of the latter, right? The better from 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 a carbon carbon perspective, right? Uh, from from that carbon perspective, we're really looking at you know if you look at the the life cycle intensity of a barrel of oil from EOR, you need about 0.6 tons of CO2 injected underground to come out neutral, right? That includes the downstream combustion at the tailpipe. It includes refining. It includes kind of all other processes, venting, methane leakage in the supply chain, right? It all adds up to about 0.6, right? So if you can push the amount of CO2 you're injecting underground to 0.6 and above, then you're actually, you have a, a, a net carbon benefit in this, right? And, and you have to consider that over the long run. So that's what we're looking at. I've heard this, this, this concept of zero carbon oil or net zero oil. Is that what we're talking about here, essentially? That's exactly right. That's it's it's again. It's sort of it sounds like an oxymoron, right? But it it, it is. If you look at the life cycle, uh, carbon in, carbon out, we know a number that you need to hit to to make that math work, right? And you have to hit about 0.6 ish tons of CO two. And we know that there are operations that exceed this. We also know there are operations that are well short of that. Right. So that's it's again, it, and it is very, very nuanced and complicated industry. So you have to be careful. You also be, have to be careful where you're sourcing it from. Right. Natural CO2 does not count. Right. You'll you'll hear about that being stored. That was mined from underground and stored back underground. There's no climate benefit there. Right. None at all. It's a wash. Right. It's a complete wash. Right. We want to take CO2 that would have hit the atmosphere. Right, so avoided CO two from power plants or, or industry. We want to store that underground. We want to remove it from the atmosphere, store it underground. And it, I should say, when I say stored underground, this is something people should also realize: CO two EOR does store that CO two underground. Okay, so the CO two that you inject into an oil field, right, uh, is about ninety nine percent of that remains secured in that system, and they've been doing that for forty years. Uh, and so there's a, a very well-known number. Um, and so it's, it is a storage mechanism. Of course, you create more fossil, you may create more carbon in the downstream fossil. And I think people recognize that. So that's where that trade-off comes. But again, life cycle, when you draw that box, we, we know exactly what you need to hit to make that like a carbon neutral or negative operation. All right. So, Pete, I want to go back to something really important you said a few minutes ago. Uh, and, and you mentioned that for this to be climate positive, DAC plus EOR, the combination has to be time limited. And you talked about it being a bridge, a bridge to get us to um, more economic direct air capture. And that bridge should last about a decade. Okay. After which point, I assume that there's going to be no more, or ideally, no more production of oil with this captured uh, carbon dioxide. Instead, that carbon dioxide is going to be buried under the ground in reservoirs, and there's going to be no fossil fuel produced as a result of that burial. But those reservoirs that would be dedicated just for the burial of carbon dioxide are not easy to come 
by. There are some permitting requirements that are quite onerous, I understand, and other barriers that are going to get in the way potentially of this or complicate the idea of this being a limited 10-year bridge. Tell us about some of those barriers to geologic storage. Yeah, it's it's an excellent question, and I absolutely agree, right? 10 years, while DAC is expensive, if we can get some of these stood up, you know, a couple doublings, uh, you know, doublings in capacities typically how, how we discuss kind of the economics starting to fall, right? We learn by doing, uh, and that could all start to take over, right? You get that a little bit more economic, right? You don't necessarily need that revenue source, or we don't need to lean as heavily onto that revenue source from EOR anymore. Right? And I, and One I stack see, becomes cheap. Right, one stack becomes cheap. And, you know, if you, if you look at the pipeline of, of CO2, or direct air capture and CCS projects globally. Right? Again, the vast majority to date been tied to EOR. The five most recent <laughs> that are active are all tied to EOR. It is, it is a measure of technical readiness. EOR is ready to go. It is ready to receive that CO2 now. It's been receiving CO2 for the last 40 years. We know how to do it. There's minimal risk. Those are all project enablers, right? If you look at the pipeline, and this is really pleasing to see, of the 100 or so CCS and DAC projects that are in early and sort of late stage development, the vast majority are tied to geological storage. The vast. I'd say only maybe three of 100 or so projects even mention EOR, right? So that is that is the shift that we're talking about, right? That is that is where people want to go. But when I look at that list, I say that these projects aren't active yet for a reason. And the reason is, is that geological storage just isn't ready yet. Andy, if you were to tell me tomorrow that we had solved geological storage as an option, I would throw EOR out with the bathwater, right? It would be gone. We would be ready to go. There's, again, it goes back to that two-door argument, that door storage, that door EOR. Let's do it. Well, so so that's interesting because everybody talks about it like, let's just go ahead and bury it. But you're implying here that it's not ready to be buried for some reason. So so what's going on here? Again, there's economics. So what is, what is the economics for storage, right? I think CO2 EOR, you're producing a fuel. You have a revenue stream. That CO2 is coming in as an operational expense. Right, so a capture partner can get some revenue to help subsidize that the 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 cost of that operation. We know that CCS, we know that DAC are expensive, and so that has played into that project viability. Right, so what 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 is the incentive for storage today? Well, the incentive for storage today is forty five Q, and forty five Q will pay you fifty dollars, fifty dollars for that 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 CO two that storage. Um, You'll get $35 today for EOR or other beneficial reuse, uh, but you also get the revenue associated right, with, with the offtake. And so it, it looks like the way the, the credits are written, oh, 50 is larger than 35. We're definitely giving a nod to storage. It's, it's, it's almost a laughable nod, right? It's not close to making it economic. Everybody recognizes this. This is why reconciliation is aiming to fix this, right? So we're boosting that 50 to 85 uh, for, for um, uh, 
uh, sort of industrially sourced. So CCS provided CO2 and we're boosting it all the way up to 180, $180 per ton proposed for direct air capture. So, so now you're talking, so you, you, you flip those economics, you'll see some attention to, to storage. It's just how the world works, right? But there are also geophysical limitations. So, so, so saline is very specific, but we need to make sure that those sites are safe. Like, so the, the Safe Drinking Water Act uh, stipulates that if you're ejecting CO2 underground, right, you, 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 have to, you have to monitor, you have to characterize that site. We need to make sure that that site has a, has a cap rock so that CO2 doesn't come back to the surface, right? And, and you need to make sure you have, have the right well, the right well to inject CO2. And this is this is kind of historically been kind of a thorn in the side, and we, we hope that we see a lot more uh, investment into the, the the development and characterization of the sites and the permitting of of these wells. Well, that's interesting. I, I think there's something called a Class Six well permit, which is needed for these permanent geologic storage sites. And as you said, there are a lot of criteria. You've got to have cap rock and this. And that. I mean, I'm not a geologist, but you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. So there are a lot of criteria that 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 need to be satisfied so that we know that the permanent storage in these saline aquifers will truly be permanent. How difficult is it to actually get these Class Six permits and uh, my understanding is there's not a whole lot of them actually that have been approved to date. Two. Two, Two. have been approved. It's it's great. It, I mean, it's interesting because everybody, again, I said it five minutes ago, everybody's talking about just burying it. But when we look at the reality, there's only two of these reservoirs that have ever been approved. This is This is the crux of the problem. This is why I would advocate for CO2EOR in the very near term until we can get this sorted, right? Get us running. I'll take a loss. I don't, I honestly, from the results I showed you, I, I don't think it is a loss in, in the long run. But even if it were a loss, right, and, and from, a, from a, a near-term climate perspective, right, I think it would be worth it from a DAC capacity build-out standpoint. Class two wells, there are millions of them for CO2, EOR, or oil and gas. Okay. Uh, uh, it takes something like 90 days to get permitted for, for a class two well, right? This is nothing. Class six, we have two. Uh, the first one took, I don't know, five years or greater. Uh, I think the second one, uh, maybe 18 months. We recognize that this is a bottleneck. It should by no means be a bottleneck. It's frustrating. We're ready to store, uh, but this is, this is it's, it's, it's a resource issue. We do want to make sure that we're characterizing these sites properly. We do want to make sure we've got monitoring verification in place, right? Uh, but the amount of permits that have been applied for, right, and it's, it's growing and growing by the day, right, you've got this backlog, we need to file through them. And so we need to dedicate resources to, to getting these permits and that class six permitting so that we can get so storage demonstrated here. And so it can play catch up. And once it does that, there is not a strong argument for CO2 EOR, maybe outside of the production of low carbon uh, transportation fuels, which we're going to need as we're transitioning away from from fossil based transportation fuels. Let, let me jump back to a, a, an issue that you also raised briefly earlier, and that's the issue of the infrastructure that's going to be involved here. And for uh, companies to invest in the infrastructure to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, then I guess build pipelines so that that can be 
can be buried underground. I mean, there, there's an investment involved in that. Is there a risk that uh, if we're looking at a limited time frame, a, a 10-year bridge for DAC plus EUR, that we're essentially getting into a situation where we're going to have a lot of uh, assets that are going to end up stranded that were built to, to serve this purpose? How do we ensure or motivate companies to invest in this with potential for stranded assets coming down the road not, not too far away? That's a terrific question. And I think the key key thing about CO2EOR is that it is actually using a lot of the infrastructure that we could easily use for geological storage. Uh, a lot of the same pipelines, you don't need a, necessarily a new pipeline. If you look at Texas and you look at where these EOR operations are existing, right, the Permian, look, there's plenty of saline storage, sometimes right below. You're talking about same same area, and some people have talked about the idea of stack storage, where you would actually do CO2 EOR and then recycle that CO2 and then store it permanently uh, in saline below, you know, to, to really maximize uh, that storage, right? So the, there is some repurposable infrastructure here. So I don't think it really. You hear about the lock-in thing, you know, you like the QWERTY keyboard, et cetera. We can't get away from it, right? It's too late. Really not the same when you think about CO2 EOR, just because the transition from CO2 EOR to saline is a lot closer than people think. It's a lot more similar. And really kind of the minor difference is that these are really both saline reservoirs. One just has oil in it and the other doesn't, or one's producing oil and the other wouldn't, right? So there's a lot that can get repurposed. But if we're building new infrastructure, the point is valid. Right, we don't want to commit too much around CO two EOR if saline is the ultimate goal, and I think that's why we're seeing, uh, uh, like for example, uh, in, in the notice of intent from the Department of Energy and the uh, 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 fossil energy carbon management. Right, so they put out a, a notice for the development of of these large scale hydrogen and DAC hubs, and actually EOR is cut out of that. Mm-hmm. EOR is disallowed as an option when considering it. Alberta. And the government of Alberta has done a similar thing, right? Cutting CO2 EOR of that out of, of those proposals. And part of that is, again, to help ensure that we're not necessarily locking in vast amount of new infrastructure for, for EOR when saline is the goal. But the, I think the other, the other part of it is, is that a lot, you know, I know at least DOE regards CO2 EOR as a very mature technology that doesn't, does not need help. And so I, I applaud them for investing a much needed resource. Again, going back to, you know, where, where should we put this resource into other options for carbon management? EOR is just one way to dispose of carbon dioxide from DAC. Obviously, saline storage is, is, is the other way that we've just been talking about. But you've looked at completely different options. You've looked at the economics of carbon to fuels. Tell us what carbon to fuels is and what did you find in your research? So carbon to fuels, CO2 to fuels, uh, uh, fuel is a hydrocarbon. So you need really two components and you can build it from scratch. You need hydrogen and you need carbon, right? And so... Well, well, typically we've been getting that from dead dinosaurs, right? Well, we can get carbon from the air. We can get it from biomass. So there are a lot of different routes to sort of build hydrocarbons from scratch. And they've gained a lot of traction because it's a promising opportunity 
is again with the recognition that we'll need some of this, for example, in aviation and as we transition as fast as necessary away from fossil to kind of bridge bridge that transition period. Let's use lower carbon options and let's let's use these as a replacement. So synthetic fuels. When you step back again, I, I run life cycle analysis and I ask, well, okay, and also tech and techno-economics, right? What would this cost? Right, so you could get the carbon intensity becomes very promising, right? When you're using uh, the air or biomass as a source, right? You could get that that carbon intensity. So the carbon intensity again, you're burning that fuel at the tailpipe, you're producing CO two, but on a net basis, right? The climate and the atmospheric accumulation of CO two is much lower. So I think it's it's a it's a it's a wise option in that sense, right? But the economics. And the resource intensity are terrible, quite frankly. And a lot of that has to do with the our, with that we lean so much on the uh, the electrolysis and, and some of the conversion technologies. CO two is a fairly stable molecule, so it's kind of challenging to convert that in, in, into other species. It's been a, a historical problem that we've tried to use catalysts and improve catalysts and improve operations to lower the energy intensity of the conversion of CO two. But if you're putting energy into that conversion, you have to be mindful of where that energy is coming from. Of course, you've got to be mindful of of the overall resources, right? So, and it's really more the hydrogen than anything else. If we can fix the hydrogen. We can we can we can make this a more viable option, and it will it will become as hydrogen and green hydrogen and those technologies get down their respective learning curves. I think that e fuels and synthetic fuels will be more competitive, but today. They're not even in the same ballpark in terms of the economics that you could have from a carbon intensity perspective when compared to CO2 EOR. Pete, a final question for you. What is your outlook for the timeline for direct air capture implementation? When might you expect the economics of direct air capture to free it from the need to be paired with enhanced oil recovery? When will it economically stand not on its own two feet, but say with the help of the 45Q tax credit. What's your outlook? My my hope is still that we're looking at, you know, over the next decade that we can cut those those debt costs in half, right? And so we're coming down from, you know, from very large scale facilities that are projected at $300, $400 per ton down to close to $200 per ton. Um, and then in the decade after that, 100, you know, I think if we can if we can shoot for, hey, over this next decade, if we can get some low carbon fuel out of this, if we can get these stood up down their learning curves and we can transition to just all out saline storage where it matters uh, by 2030 and moving forward, we'll be in a good place as a, as a society. But I do want to keep an eye on getting that DAC build out on pace. That is my priority as a researcher to make sure that that's moving forward. Because if we miss on that, we're in a, none of this is going to matter. None of what we're talking about today and the incremental percentage points of, of fossil uh, that are fuels that are created, none of that's going to matter if we don't have the engineered direct air capture to meet our, our uh, you know, climate goals. If we find ourselves in an overshoot scenario, right, and to, to kind of uh, remove us and kind of uh, uh, deliver us from those those harms and, and potential irreversible harms, right? Uh, that's, that is the eye on the price. So it's really get this going uh, by any means necessary in the near term, but do it 
but do it under under very strict and strong governance to make sure that we don't accidentally create a situation where we find ourselves in a, in a path of no return. I really struggle to see how that could happen. And I say that not naive. I say that fully knowing uh, kind of the historical actions of the oil and gas industry. But I'm also encouraged that we do see so much precedent in, in kind of policy now and policy guardrails that could be developed to make sure we're doing this responsibly. And, and so things I think we th- that we can do, right? So the, the reconciliation, so improving uh, incentive for, for saline storage, make it more an economical option, right? Even that, that we were seeing that gap split between beneficial reuse and storage. I'd love to see that progressively broaden over time. Right. So that you, again, you would kind of enable transitioning as an economic argument over time. Uh, I'd love to see a longer payout period for geolog- geological storage. We definitely, definitely need more investment into class six permitting to get these, though, if that is the limiting factor, right? That ought not be. Let's get that uh, invested in and moving uh, uh, quickly so that we can, you know, get these storage projects up and running. You know, I think. Uh, Investment in, in 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 a hub structure where we can kind of capture economies of scale and dedicating those uh, to geological storage also super important in terms of kind of maximal use of of infrastructure. Um, as far as CO two ER goes, you know I would love to see those natural domes that are currently producing CO two right out of the earth. I'd love to flip the switch. And make those geological reservoirs. We know that they can accommodate CO2 because they've been doing so for years, right? And years. Uh, and, and they already have the infrastructure in place, right? And so I think, you know, there are there are those types of opportunities and, and, and guardrails that we can we can put in place uh, that, that that will allow us to take certain actions today and not lock us in. Pete, thanks very much for talking. Of course. Thanks, Andy. Today's guest has been Pete Saras, a research assistant professor of chemical engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Visit the Climate Center's website for more podcasts, as well as energy policy research and blog posts. To keep up with the latest from the center, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our website. Our address is Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.